So hello everyone again. Um, my name is Rita McGrath with Columbia Business School. My guest is Shelley Archambault, who uh, is one of the first real black leaders uh, in Silicon Valley, was the highest person of color, as I understand it, uh, for many years at uh, IBM, uh, has been a senior leader, a CEO, has had a really fabled career, and today is on uh, multiple corporate boards, including Verizon and Nordstrom, uh, and has a brand new book coming out called uh, Unapologetically Ambitious. Yep, we're going to see it. And I, I was, normally if I have authors on, I have their book here, but I don't have it yet because it's, it's not out. Out yet. That's, that's an early fake copy. <laughs> it, um, but it comes out October 6th, but don't be a laggard. Go and pre-order it now. That will be great for Shelley, great for the book, and uh, you could see first in line at getting um, uh, the insights that the book uh, holds. So um, that being said, I thought, Shelley, maybe just start off by telling folks a little bit about your journey. I mean, clearly with the title of your book, you're not shy about <laughs> the career progress you've made. I just love to learn more about that. Absolutely. First, let me just check because the landscapers just started outside a little early. Usually they don't come until noon. Can you guys hear me okay? I can hear you fine. All right. Let me know. If there ends up with background noise, I can throw on some headphones. Um, <laughs> the joys of working from home is everybody. Oh, I know. <laughs> oh, I know. It's like, <laughs> it's funny. I have, a, I have a house phone here and uh, because we have not yet been able to solve the problem of robocallers, it just rings all day long. And so my friends joke with me. They're like, did you put the dog out in the yard? You know, can <laughs> get rid of it. <laughs> so true. So true. Um, so yes, I, uh, I am, I'm one of those unusual people and that I decided very early in life, I set a goal to be a CEO. And it was one of those things where frankly, I don't even know that I really knew at the time what that meant. All I knew is that when I was in high school, I loved clubs. You know, I was in French Club American Field Service. I was in the National Honor Society. I was in Girl Scout, whatever I got involved in, I ultimately ended up running it either as president or vice president or something. And I enjoyed it. Uh -huh. And a guidance counselor told me once that, well, you know, running a business is just like running a club, right? You figure out what you want to do. You get some people lined up and you go do it. And I thought, great, done. I'm going to go be CEO of a company. <laughs> Did you have multinationals in mind at the time? Or were you a little more modest? <laughs> well, actually, it was when I ended up, my target was IBM. So I went to Wharton. You know, I said, okay, let me go get my business degree. Excuse me. Right. Uh -huh. Let me go get my business degree. And, um, and IBM, I went. And so I said, great, um, I will indeed go become CEO of IBM. And that's what I did. So I actually joined in sales because I'd done the research and every single CEO at IBM started out in sales. Huh. So that must be the path to power. There you go. And that's what I did, even though my friends thought I was crazy. How do you come out of Wharton and go be a salesperson? <coughs> Pardon me. But that's what I did. Mm -hmm. And then um, I spent 14 years rising through the ranks um, and ultimately doing running operations in the U.S. as well as overseas. Ended up moving overseas to Japan for that oh, business. Wow. Yep, running wow. a multi-billion dollar division. Um, I, sorry, they have trouble with me in Japan. Uh, you <laughs> can imagine. Listen, Japan. You, you, can, you can imagine, Rita. As, as a matter of fact, <laughs> as, a, as a side story, my boss that I was leaving, right? So the job I was leaving to go take this job, he had actually spent a lot of time in Asia working. And so and I actually talk about this in the book. Um, but he said, all right, how much do you know about Confucius? And I said, wait a minute. If you're trying to tell me something, just tell me. And he said, all right, there's three things that are critical to success in business. 
Okay, I'm ready, right? I'm listening. I'm, I'm all of like 36, 37 years old. <coughs> Pardon me, allergies. And um, he says, the first is wisdom. That's age. You don't have it, Shelly. <laughs> Strike one. Two is being male. Nope. Strike two. And I'm thinking, oh my God, there's three things that are critical that I have zero for two. And then he says, the third is intelligence. And you better figure out how to maximize it. So that was my send-off speech. Oh, great. oh my God. <laughs> did, they, did they drill you in Japanese cultural customs? Um, you know, what happened is, it was interesting. Japan was fascinating. It was so completely different. But because I had been a minority my whole life and my whole career, it actually ended up being an advantage for me because I didn't go through the shock of being a minority. Mm -hmm. I already knew I was one. And therefore I knew how to act as one. I knew that people weren't going to give me the benefit of the doubt, that they weren't going to assume that everything I've done, you know, comes with me. They weren't, I mean, I knew all these things. So I actually ended up being pretty successful pretty quickly, whereas others tended to struggle because yeah. they thought everything came with them, right? Um, so, so yeah, so I tell women and minorities all the time, take international assignments. You actually have an advantage for the first time because you are a female and because you are a minority, you know what it's like to work in environments in which you are one of only, right? Or different, all those things. Exactly. So, so it's fascinating. One of my um, early Japan stories, this happened when I was in uh, the doctoral program at Wharton, as it happens. Um, and my professor mentor and I were going off to a conference in Ito City. And uh, the, the design of the conference was each professor brought either a younger professor or a doctoral student, and then the doctoral student would present their joint work. And it was a developmental kind of thing. It was great. But we're all getting ready to go. We all meet at the Central Japanese Hotel um, to get on the bus to go to Ito City. And uh, all the Japanese look at us, and, and they're just like, horrified there's some sort of major etiquette issue right and they all go off to the corner of this lobby and leaving us kind of standing there we don't know what's going on so it turns out that a really strong norm in Japanese academic circles is that doctoral students always carry their professors bags and belongings and you know they handle all the, the grunt they're, they're like the Sherpas right but there's also an equally strong cultural norm that the men always carry that stuff for, for the women if they're traveling together. So this produced an incredible crisis of etiquette. What do we do? <laughs> so the resolution, as it turns out, was I would carry my professor's bags and one of their doctoral students would carry my bags. <laughs> but I mean, you just have all those kinds of moments where you don't expect what's going to be controversial right? it's so it's so true so true that was a, it was a great experience mm -hmm. um, how long were you over there i was over there for two years two years okay yep and then um and then i but i got to the point where at that point my boss worked for lou gerstner the ceo so i had done really well mm -hmm. and there wasn't anybody above me who looked like me mm -hmm. um but it wasn't clear to me that i was actually going to make it to the ceo and i said you know I really do want to be CEO. That's my goal, but it mm -hmm. doesn't have to be IBM. Mm -hmm. So I've done large businesses. I'm not going to go to another large company, mm -hmm. but let me take all that I've learned and go build something. Mm -hmm. But I also knew, because I'd done the research, by the way, homework, and you know this as a professor, homework never ends. You don't stop doing homework just because you finished school. 
I do homework all the time. Homework is just getting it the knowledge so that you can be prepared. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, I did the research and a lot of people who leave big companies stumble a time or two when mm -hmm. they go to lead a smaller company. Mm -hmm. Well, as a woman of color, I don't think I have as many strikes at bat. So I've always worked hard to improve my odds for success. Mm -hmm. So I said, all right, let me go take a seat at the table job, a jobs where I'm in the C-suite, work for the CEO, and I get exposure to the board so that I can understand what's so different and improve my odds. Mm -hmm. So I left IBM to be CEO, uh, actually president of Blockbuster.com, which at the time was I, I in its wanted, day. I wanted to ask you about that because that was, if I recall, that was a partnership with Enron, that Enron, right? But the digital part of Enron, I was so curious about what that was like. Oh, man. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. So first, when I got there, it was before the Enron thing deal done. Um, and we were just launching the website, blockbuster.com, to at first kind of sell tchotchkes to advertise movies, you know, those kinds of things. But the idea was ultimately to become the streaming portal for Blockbuster for movies. Hence, the relationship with Enron. <coughs> Pardon me. As they were building out, quote, the network. Um, as you know, that never actually happened. Um, but it became clear. What an interesting story, though. Like, oh, it was. Who, who today would have thought that would be a partnership, you know? Exactly. Exactly. It's, you know, anyway, it's wild. But it became clear that Blockbuster didn't really have the vision for the future. And so I worked my way to Silicon Valley. Um, and I was the chief marketing officer and EVP of sales for two recently public companies. And then I got recruited to be CEO of what was then Zaplet which became Metricstream, uh, which at the time was a very broken company that um, we managed with an amazing team to actually turn around and turn into a market leader. So I've had a very varied career, all in tech, um, and uh, really had some exciting experiences. That sounds wonderful. It sounds so interesting. So um, let's unpack a little this whole notion of, of women being ambitious, right? Because, um, it, you know, it's controversial, right? So at Columbia, one of the things I do is I teach a course on women in leadership. And one of the things that is very much informing the design of that course is that women and other people in low power positions in companies have this narrower range of acceptable behavior, right? So if you're too pleasant and friendly, you're a lightweight. And if you're too aggressive and assertive, you're, you know, you're, you're abrasive. You know? And, exactly. and can you talk a little about how you navigate that? Because I think you've done it brilliantly. And, and then maybe there's a lot we could learn from you. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, and you're right, it is a narrow path that women are expected to walk. And a lot of it is because society has norms for what we think of as a woman's role or how women behave. And when you get into business, a lot of times what's expected in business conflicts with what people think of when they think of their mothers, right? Or their sister or whatever it is. Um, so we're put in this really hard position. And what I found is frankly, being direct, um, with compassion is what has enabled me, I think, to kind of walk that line. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I will deliver the hard messages. I'll make the tough decisions. You know, I'll do all of that. But I do try to do it in a way that also shows that I'm compassionate about it um, and, and supportive right at the end. So, for instance, if I'm giving someone feedback that, listen, right now they're on the wrong path and they need to really deliver Otherwise, there's going to have to be consequences. 
right? So I will absolutely say that, but then I'll always end with something like, but I'm sure if you really put your effort to it, you can do it, mm -hmm. right? Or, you know, I'm rooting for you to be able to get there. You know, I put something in there that shows that I have compassion and belief, mm -hmm. right, in them. Um, or if it's really tough and I can't even say that, I'll at least end it, believe it or not, with a smile, which is a really silly thing to have to do. But what it does is it softens. Mm. It just softens. Um, and people are able to take those things. Uh, so I've found that we, that I, I won't say we, I, because I'm a woman, but I'm also a person of color, that mm -hmm. I don't have, what should I say? That I can't be as direct and frankly harsh as some people are in business, but that just doesn't, that doesn't work for me. It's not effective. Mm -hmm. And a lot of business is learning how your style, people should not change their styles, but how to make your style effective. Mm -hmm. That's really the key. Don't adapt somebody else's style because it's going to seem inauthentic. Mm -hmm. Just figure out how you take your style and just test it. Try different things to see what tends to work mm -hmm. and then hone, right? That overall capability or approach. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about the, the, the sort of big turning points, right? And, and um, one of the things that just in management in general you learn is, you know, people go from managing themselves, being individual contributors, to managing a team, and that's a big transition, to managing teams of teams, you know, to finally you're managing people who are managing people who are managing teams of teams. Um, and did you find that your, your, my friend Whitney Johnson talks about jumping on S-curves. You know, mm -hmm. did you find that that, what was that like for you did, to, when you had to step into this, one of these new roles and learn all this new stuff? Yeah, it's funny. I talk about it in my book in terms of every time you take a big leap in your career, you end up at the bottom rung of the learning curve ladder, right? Um, which should be expected. So it's no surprise that we get there and we think, oh my God, right? And we get imposter syndrome and we feel like, oh no, they're going to figure out I don't know what the heck I'm doing. I mean, we have all this stuff that comes flowing into our brains, right? Well, of course. And no, and they don't expect us to know everything. Um, so the good news is just know you're not alone. Everybody feels that way. You know, I tell people, if you don't feel uncomfortable several times within a quarter or so, then you're just not learning. Because every time you feel uncomfortable, it's really just your body's energy way of saying, okay, I don't know everything right this second. And you know what? Great. Great. Because if you know everything every second, you are not learning and you are not pushing yourself. Mm -hmm. So it is perfectly fine to feel the, oh my God, right? Every once in a while, we should all feel it. Because then you, that's when you grow the absolute most um, as you pay attention. So, you know, how did I deal with it? Same way everybody did. I was like, okay, first you get that sweeping feel of, uh-oh, they're going to figure out that I don't really know what I'm doing, right? Um, so you get that whole imposter syndrome piece, which I do also talk about in the book. Um, but then, you know, the way I've always approached that is, okay, they wouldn't have given me the job if they didn't think I could do it. All right, so believe them when they tell me that I can do this job. Um, two, everybody feels this way at some point. So this is not unique to me. It's just something that happens so I can kind of deal with it. Uh, three, I try to fake it until I make it. So I just act like I know what I'm doing. Um, and then eventually I will. So 
you know, and then the other thing I have, and I think it's so important for everybody, um, is to have cheerleaders. Mm-hmm. And when I say cheerleaders, Rita, I mean real cheerleaders. Rah, rah, go, go, cheerleader, which is somebody you call up and you're feeling like, OMG, right? <laughs> you know, and they're the ones that say, Shelly, you know you're capable. You've got this. You've done X, you've done Y, you've done Z, you're perfect. I mean, they give you that whole pep talk thing. Mm-hmm. Right? You need cheerleaders because so much in the world, forget just business, mm-hmm. so much in the world is telling us, especially women and people of color, but they're telling us we're not all that all the time. You know, we're not smart enough. We're not, who knows, we're not technical enough. We're not, um, you know, thin enough. We're not pretty enough. We're not tall enough. We're not young enough. We're not, I mean, you fill in the blank. We are not enough. Okay? <laughs> the world tells us that every day. Mm-hmm. So, of course, we need people in our corner saying, oh, yes, you are. Oh, yes, you are. Because when times are really hard, we start believing the world. Yeah. And let me tell you, the world doesn't know who you are. The world has no clue. So, you know, you just got to put that stuff aside. Um, You know who you are. The people who love you, they know who you are. So Mm -hmm. lean on them to remind you when you need to be reminded. That's such a good thing. It's such good advice. You know, one sort of along those lines, something that comes up a lot in the discussions I have with women are finding mentors, but more importantly, finding sponsors. Um, did you did you go about that strategically? Were you sort of checking out the people that you think could, in a good way? I'm not talking about being, you know, mis- yeah. mis- doing it, but were you sort of very intentional about that? Or was that more kind of it came with the package? Or how did that work for you? Yeah, no, so I'll be candid. You know, initially, I didn't really understand the difference between, I'll call mentors and sponsors. Um, I got, I really got lucky. Probably, like, I don't even know, six years into my career, five years into my career, something like that. I was at IBM, and IBM decided that, okay, for their high potential employees, they wanted to make sure they had mentors. But they had the brilliant idea of having their mentees, people identified, say, who would you like to be your mentor? And we'll help facilitate that, right? Okay. So I got asked. I said, great. I looked around and said, all right. I picked a guy. His name is Roland Harris. He was several levels, a couple of levels above me. I knew him. Um, and I thought, okay, I think he likes me. I'll pick Roland. Well, Roland calls me up like several days later. Shelly. I said, hey, Roland. He says, Shelly, you put me down to be your mentor. And I'm thinking, he's not very happy. And I said, well, yeah, Roland, I thought you liked me. And he said, Shelly, you've got me. Go get somebody else. And I was like, oh. Oh, that's super interesting. Oh, so what, what that did for me, literally, that's all he said. I mean, we didn't have a long conversation. It was just literally, that was it. But I really listened to what he said. And here's what I heard. I heard two things. One, I have mentors that I don't even know I have. Um, two, I can have as many as I want. <laughs> So I took both those things and just put it on steroids and I just started adopting mentors all over the place. Mm-hmm. And then what happens, that's why I said the reason I didn't really understand the difference between mentor and sponsor, because one of the things that started happening to me is people who, you know, I had adopted and treated like a mentor, well, as they're moving up and things are happening, I was moving up and doing well. They would actually start claiming me. We never had formal relationships, but oh, Shelly, oh yeah, I give her advice and counsel yeah, from time to time. Oh, Shelly, yeah. Oh, and so they became sponsors. They became sponsors because they were now proud of the impact that they were having, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
and the way it's funny, let me just share one piece sure, for those sure. who are listening, because this is just so critical. And by the way, I talk about how to do this in the book. The key here is not just taking advice. So many people go and they take advice from people and they think that's how you create a mentoring relationship. Not a relationship by definition is two way, not one way. When you're just taking, it's one way. And guess what? The people you're taking from are going to feel used and they're not going to be helpful over time. You have to actually give them something too, right? So it has to be a two-way street in order for it to work. But the book talks about how to get that done. So anyway, that's, 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 that's how I see it. Yeah, that's, that's so important because one of the things I, I, work, I, I write about in, in my work is that the more senior you get, the harder it is to get unfiltered information. And so one of the things I counsel the younger, the typically younger women in my programs is, you know, you have, you have insight nobody else has. You have a perspective nobody else has. You may see things that are incredibly valuable that you could be bringing into those conversations. So when you think about the context of giving back, um, there's a lot, there's a lot there. I love this idea of they were claiming you though. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it really was. It really was. And listen, Reed, I completely agree with the point that you're making. You know, one of the things that I like to say is as you rise in organizations, you have to listen harder because people don't tell you or they whisper or they hint, right? They don't tell you, tell you. So you really have to listen, but you also have to speak softer mm. because you don't realize that what you say gets magnified right out there. And if you're not careful, you can cause behavior in an organization that you have no idea you actually created because somebody heard that you wanted something or you made a side comment about interested in something. And next thing you know, it's like there's a whole initiative going off. So yeah, listen harder, speak softer as you get out. That's great advice. That's great advice. So walk us through the book. Um, sort of, sort of take us on that journey. I would be very interested. Sure. To hear. Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I start out um, by really trying to share what made Shelly Shelly. Okay. And it was clear to me early in life, Rita, that the odds just weren't in my favor. I grew up in the racially charged 60s, an environment that told me very clearly that I was really not wanted. Um, and you were one of five, five children, right? What's you, were that? Five, you were one of five one children? Of four. Four, four. Yeah, one of four children, but my parents had, were crazy. They had four kids in less than five years. Whoa. So it was, <laughs> I mean, literally. That's um, determination. <laughs> I'm telling you. So, um, so the good news is we grew up very close and tight because we were very close in age. Uh, also very competitive, which I think has helped because I definitely am competitive and I definitely like to win. Um, and um, so therefore, I realized that if I just did what everybody else does, I wasn't going to get much. Um, so I needed to figure out how to improve my odds. And I spent my whole life basically being about what I do and always working towards goals. Mm -hmm. And frankly, that approach has helped me professionally and personally. So in the book, I talk about that. And then I talk about really kind of each stage in terms of, all right, as you start your career, you know, setting yourselves up, setting yourself up to actually achieve the things that you want to achieve. You know, I talk about building the plan, living the plan, and then when stuff doesn't go as expected, and what do you do? And I talk about trade-offs that you have to make. Talk about the whole imposter syndrome, right? All, all those things in terms of in the, early, in the early years. And then I talk about challenges that I personally faced um, as a result. Uh, I also talk about how it, once you get to senior levels, right? Now, how do you navigate, right? In those, in those roles. I talk about 
man, we, I mean, we moved, I don't even know how many times my, I moved with my family and my kids, you know, maybe half a dozen, six, seven times, we moved a bunch. Um, and all that that brings, right? And the trade-offs that you make, right, around it. I uh, talk about how, did, how I got my first board seat, right? How strategically I went after it. So the book is really about the strategies and approaches, as well as very specific tactics and techniques for improving your odds mm -hmm. to get what you want out of life professionally and personally. Mm -hmm. Because this whole notion of I have my work hat and my personal hat, I think is baloney. I mm -hmm. honestly think this whole work-life balance terminology itself mm -hmm. was just designed to make us feel perpetually guilty. Because what is oh, yeah. the balance? I mean, what is the balance? The balance is fixed. Right? You got to pull up, you've got to balance even on all sides at all times. That's what balance is. Mm -hmm. Life does not work that way. It doesn't. So, from the get go, you're failing if that's your measurement, right? So, no, that's ridiculous. I believe that I am one person. My life is personal, my life is professional, it is integrated. I need to look at it, do the set of priorities in total, mm -hmm. and then prioritize what I'm going to go do, and frankly, what I'm not. Mm -hmm. And that's how you get things done. So I talk about that kind of thing also within the book. That's wonderful. So you're married? You have kids? I, well, um, I was married for over 34 years. Oh, wow. Uh -huh. Unfortunately, my husband passed away from cancer last oh. year. Oh, I'm sorry. I did not yes. know that. Yes, yes. No, that, that's okay. Um, and how did, how, but, so, so he's married to this, you know, force of nature. Um, how did you navigate? Because one of the things my friend Aviva Wittenberg Cox talks about a lot is that, you know, sometimes the biggest barrier to women's advancements are the people they share beds with. <laughs> and I think there's a lot to be learned about how to have those conversations because it's easy for your partner to say, yes, absolutely. I support you. Go for it. But then it's, well, that means we have to move to Japan for two years. It's like, hang on, <laughs> you need to do what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how did, you, how did you have those conversations? Well, you know, first of all, I'm a big believer in communications. And like I said, I've been intentional my whole life. Before I even got engaged, I talked to my then ultimately became husband about what my aspirations were in life, about what I wanted to accomplish, about how, you know, we talked about how we saw life working. We talked about all of that. So that we were a team, you know, my mm -hmm. career became our career plan. Um, and we worked in partnership all the way through. But I tell people to this day, you know, amazed at how many couples don't actually have those kind of conversations mm -hmm. before they, you know, start off on a long term marriage. Mm -hmm. um, and even early in marriage, still don't talk about it. You know, they wait until things actually happen. And that's hard. That's really hard. So I think it's, I think the number one, you know, way to improve the odds that you can actually work through those kinds of decisions and make trade-offs that everybody feels happy about and nobody feels that they sacrificed, right, for, um, is talking about it up front, mm -hmm. talking about it at least early or e even eventually, even if you've been married 10 years and you still haven't talked about it, you should talk about it now. Um, but share, here's what I, here's what I think I'd like to do. Here's how I see our future. You know, I think a lot of divorces happen because people's vision of the future is not the same. Mm 
Um, so create that shared vision and then work together on it. You know, my success was my husband's success, right? Things he did, we were very much, very much a team. Mm -hmm. And so that actually made it much, much easier, mm -hmm. right? All the way through, because it wasn't like we're having the conversation for the first time when it came to move to Japan, you know, he was like, fantastic. Because yeah. oh, here's what this meant and here's what this meant and took us closer to, you know, here's the overall goal. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's, you know, and, I, and anyway, I talk about those things too in the book because like I said, I, I don't see how it's separate. So, well, you are ambitious. There are things to do to help you. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. Um, what did, what was he doing? Um, through so, what, sure. So my husband, when we met, we actually met at IBM. Um, and, um, he, yeah, he was in, he was in management, you know, et cetera. And we met, so he, and I, he and I worked, both worked for IBM for a while, um, had both kids. Um, and then we had talked about this. Then he, when he got to the point where he then stayed home and was doing consulting, um, so that he could be the primary person responsible for the kids. And then we got to the point where he just stayed home full time with the kids. Wow. So that was a team effort. It was absolutely was. That's 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 amazing. That's just, he was amazing. Yeah, that sound, it sounds it. It really sounds it. So, um, why do you think it is that people don't do that? Like, like I mean, one of the things that you as you lay it out, right? It sounds so completely clear. And you know, if you're starting from behind, you have to figure out how to turn the odds in your favor and all these sorts of things. And yet, you know, I get I get these rooms full, well, virtual rooms now full of women and. And they're not having those conversations and they're not sort of saying this is my stake in the ground and they're not, you know, it, it just, um, there's an almost reluctance to, to say that. And then there was a wonderful book written some years back and the, the title of the book was how not to hate your husband after having kids. <laughs> but it was about this exact issue, which is like all of a sudden this bomb drops from the sky and you have this creature you're now responsible for and all kinds of things happen that nobody really planned um, and didn't anticipate. And, and I wonder why you think that is. Yeah. So first of all, I, I think it's scary. And you have to be vulnerable um, mm -hmm. to actually have those conversations. Um, and, you know, many people are, are afraid and uncomfortable just sharing what their, what their real aspirations are. You know, it's a secret. You know, deep down, you know, deep down, this is what I really like to do. Uh -huh. And, you know, I'll, I'll mentor people or talk to people and I'll say, oh, wow, that's great. Who knows? Well, you know, maybe their husband knows, you know, maybe a friend knows, not many people know. And why is that? I think it's because when you put it out there, mm -hmm. then if it, two things, one, if it doesn't happen, you feel like a failure. Mm -hmm. um, if you put it out there and other people think it's ridiculous, right? Then you feel, you know, the wrath or the, the what should I say? The, the bush, the, the, the pushback, right? Or whatever people are like, you know, are you crazy? And again, as I said, we are judged on so many things already. And putting that out there just adds another thing for people to judge me on, right? So I understand, mm -hmm. absolutely understand why people don't. Mm -hmm. And even in a relationship, um, you know, sometimes it's one of those things you just want to put off because you're afraid of how that might actually go yeah. or what might actually happen. Um, even if you haven't admitted it to yourself. So, you know, it's understandable. But at the same time, courage, courage is a muscle. Mm 
Mm. Nobody is born with courage. Mm. Mother nature, make sure of that. <laughs> All right. I mean, because we had to, you know, if this, if the species is going to survive, we as humans, we can't protect ourselves for like the first, you know, three years of life. We can do nothing to protect ourselves. So mother nature from the beginning, it is flight. We're scared. We run. We're scared. Mm-hmm. We yell. We're scared. I mean, that is built in hardwired. So when you see anybody who's courageous, they have developed that. Mm-hmm. It is a muscle, which means you can too. Mm-hmm. You can too. You do not. I was not born courageous. You could. How do you do that? Mm-hmm. It's by taking the first doing something that you're uncomfortable with. So you do it once, and you realize, I didn't die. That worked. Oh my God, right? Oh my God. Exactly. I'm okay. I'm still standing, right? I mean, right? And then you kind of do it again. Um, but yeah, I think building courage is something that's so important, but it's not something we talk about much, you know, or are in, or even encouraged to actually do. But I think that is a that's a key, that's a key element. So I understand there's not much around us that it that um, supports us taking all these risks. But I've always believed that risk and reward, you know, risk and opportunity, two sides of the same coin. If you don't take the risk, you're not going to get, you know, the upside. So, so um, I want to pick up on this theme of courage because it's something that I struggle with a lot. Um, and I do a lot of work on innovation and growth. And obviously these are highly uncertain things. And, you know, you talk to these senior leaders and they're you know, people in incredibly senior positions. They're in C-suites, they're in boards. And they're like, oh, you know, and, and it's absolutely clear to me like what this company needs to do or eventually the story is not going to end well, right? I mean, it's totally clear. And I lay it all out for them and they agree, right? And then I say, okay, well, if we all agree, these are the action steps that are going to be necessary to execute against that common understanding and they freeze in the headlights and then it's back to oh yeah that was a great strategy meeting but now we're going to go back to the budget and it's politics and it's all and and you know it i really do think it sometimes comes down to a lack of courage yes yep i i completely agree i completely agree so the cool thing is if you can build courage as actually a strong or strength or, you know, honestly, for me, it's one of my superpowers. <laughs> you know, people talk about superpowers. I'm telling you, courage is absolutely one of them. Courage. And the second one is discipline. <coughs> Pardon me. Mm-hmm. Second one is discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you can build it, it's amazing how much it can help you. Mm-hmm. Um, everywhere. I mean, in the boardroom, you know, I, I honestly, I get feedback on positive feedback on my courage, even in the boardroom, mm-hmm. um, because I will put things on the table, Mm -hmm. right? Or I will say things. I will, um, when everybody's thinking it, but again, it's a risk because if you say it and then it doesn't go over well, you get, right, the the flack for that. Um, So it's all a risk. And trust me, that doesn't mean that I haven't been courageous and done something and then felt, well, that didn't work, right? Or or that ended up being kind of stupid. Does that happen? Absolutely. Good news is it happens a whole lot less than when it actually makes an impact right? Or work. So I keep doing it anyway. Um, that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. So one of the things that you've been very public about um, is 
at this pivotal moment, you know, so we've got four inflection points, right? We've got a global pandemic, we've got a global economic meltdown, we've got this racial justice um, set of issues really being put very much before people. And underlying it all, we've got an environmental crisis that people are just kind of going, hama, 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 I don't want to hear it. Um, do you think this could be a moment for real change? I mean, you know, when I look at, um, for example, I, 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 was, I was studying actually IBM uh, under Gerstner, which I think was the largest document that I know of anyway, a large company that made a real effort to um, be more, um, what's the right word, be more, be a real effort towards not just diversity, but also inclusion. And they actually scored managers on it. And, you know, the, it was the first case I, I had read about. Um, but all too often, these things are like, all right, we'll do the, you know, we'll do the um, unconscious bias training and we tick that box and then we move on. Do you think we really are at a moment of um, change now, real change? So I will tell you, I am cautiously optimistic. Okay. <laughs> but, and the re, and let me let me and I'll I'll explain the the, the you know what should I say the qualifier. The reason I'm optimistic, I'll do that first, then I'll tell you why I'm cautious. Mm -hmm. I'm optimistic because for the first time, the people who are out there, whether it's protesting or writing or just communicating that this is not right, mm -hmm. reflects the entire country. Mm -hmm. Right? There's a diversity of people out there that reflect the country. It's not just, if you talk about racial justice and racial equity, it's not just blacks leading the charge with a few other people, right? Mm -hmm. It reflects the country. So I'm like, ah, oh, okay, that's one. Mm -hmm. Two, businesses for the first time, for the first time are getting engaged in the conversation. Mm -hmm. During the civil rights movement, businesses sat on the sideline. This is a government issue. Mm -hmm. This time they're actually getting engaged. Mm -hmm. And businesses have more power, personally, I personally believe, than they even realize. It's amazing to me that businesses don't use their power more. But the fact that they're actually at least acting like that they want to see change, I think is a positive. Now, the mm -hmm. reason I'm cautious is because we tend to get tired. Yeah. We tend to get tired as a country. So whatever the issue is, we'll put a lot of energy around it for several months. And then, you know, I'm tired. And you go on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. Well, it's taken us 400 years to get to where we are on the racial situation in the country. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to fix it in eight months. No. So that's why my word is cautious. Now, that said, here's where it's important to use the power. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important for people who sit in boardrooms, right? They can actually make sure that this stays top of mind and a focus for companies. Absolutely. Right? So if we do the right job and keep companies engaged, companies have a huge impact on everything, not just the jobs and roles that we have. Companies are the biggest taxpayers for local governments. Mm -hmm. All right? Mm -hmm. If we use that power to say, this isn't okay. Right? This is not okay. So what are we doing about this locally? Forget nationally from it, just locally. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of power that businesses can actually exert just asking for the right things, right, to be done. So if we can keep that focus, then I think we can start to change the trajectory and make some progress. Mm -hmm. But if we don't, it'll just be, you know, another thing that kind of came and went. Yeah. And, um, and that would just be horrific because prior to this time people could say i just didn't know yeah, didn't know. yeah. right now everybody knows 
So if we decide not to do anything to fix it, then what we're saying as society is we're okay living in a society where people have different levels of whether or not they're really a human being Mm. and should be treated as a human being. We'll have a level for one set of people, another level for another set of people, another level for, and we're okay with that. Well, Mm -hmm. that would be a horrible indictment on our country if we consciously agree that that's okay. Agree. Agree. I um I read a statistic in a, a piece you were in quoted in um that one in three black men are going to at some point in their lives face incarceration. I just I my, my head exploded. I was like, what? I had no idea that I did not know. Um, yep. And that's a structural issue. I mean, that's not you know. Yeah, yep. um, I know. Listen, it's 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 horrific. My husband, my son-in-law. Um, graduated from Morehouse. He, he manages a $40 million investment fund, right? The whole bit. He has had 25 police encounters. What? He's, yeah, he's 36 years old. And five years of those 36 years, he lived out of the country. Just to give you an idea. Wow. Yeah, people don't know because we don't talk about it. Right. But yes, it's, it's horrific. So um, board, uh, board level questions, I think, yes. are very penetrating. And one of the things I've been pushing, um, and this actually is, so I think the, the racial justice conversation is very much to me intertwined with the economic justice con- conversation. And uh, I've been doing quite a bit of research on that. And my friend Zainab Tom, who runs the thing called the Good Jobs Institute, um, makes the observation that we have... 40, I think the number is 45 million people in this country who earn less than $15 an hour. And that that is not a livable wage. And one of the points she makes that I think is so important is that we see sort of the worth of a person who will pay 15 bucks an hour for that person, right? What we don't see is because that person who may be very capable is working two jobs and has kids at home and is a single parent is simply not going to be a functional employee. <laughs> so it, it, it's not a one-way causality, right? So exactly. I think then, and one of the things she recommends, and I think we need to do this, is, you know, report out. I get the boards asking, how much are we paying? Who, you know, what's the racial and ethnic breakdown of who we're paying by what level? And I think if boards started asking, management would start paying more attention to it. I completely agree. It is something we talk about at my boards and my companies. Mm-hmm. And that's where the whole thing about courage comes in. Because mm-hmm. you're right. It needs to be asked and discussed everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and credit given to those that get it right. Um, I mean, you may remember a few years ago, um, Mark Bertolini at Aetna. Um, a lot of times it's, it's not willful. It's kind of ignorant, right? That he actually was confronted by, I believe it was a group of employees who said, you know, we can't, we can't make this work. We can't even afford our own health plan. <laughs> and he arbitrarily basically raised the wages of everybody yes. in the company to a minimum wage of $16 an hour. And the business press went crazy. <laughs> I mean, they went haywire. They were like, this is going to destroy your company and your shareholders are going to revolt and all this. Right. All this and right. none of that happened. None of that yeah. happened. They created tremendous value for shareholders under Mark. Yeah, Mark, and you I know, know Mark. Oh, yeah. that, was, that was fantastic. But there are a lot of companies that are doing it. Hey, <coughs> oh, allergies. Um, pay, pay, PayPal is another one, right? Mm-hmm. Under John, Diane Schulman. They've also done the similar thing in terms of making sure people are actually making a living wage. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a lot of companies. Mm-hmm. You know, Verizon looks at that. I mean, all, all these companies, right? Nordstrom has announced, and these are all companies that I'm in, engaged with, but North, I sit on the board of Verizon, Nordstrom, um, Roper Technologies, and Okta. And Nordstrom announced 
last year, pay equity. They've done it, right? They've gone through the numbers. We have pay equity, right, across the across the um, the company. And that's so these things can be done. Mm-hmm. And do you think it's just laziness, or or we haven't we we don't want to put the energy into this, or honestly, you know, it's like anything else. You just have to be intentional. So right okay. now, it's not in it's not in the top priority to figure out how how to actually make that work. And I know companies will say, well, gosh, then we can't run our company, right? If this is the case. And then I personally, and I'm sure this is a bit of blasphemy. My view is then redo the business model. I, you know, I mean, we heard, uh, so anyway. <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if, you, if you're running a business that relies on slave labor, basically, um, you, that, that's not an economically viable thing for anybody. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, very, very, very interesting. Um, uh, so one, one of the things Zainab's really working on is she said, you know, a lot of the new jobs that are going to be created in this country right now are service jobs. And she said, we have to figure out how to make service jobs good jobs because, you know, training is not going to dig us out of this, you know. So more broadly, do you, do you think we could be on the cusp of, I'll call it a new social contract or a new expectation of business that they're going to be good citizens. I mean, we've had this huge debate, the business roundtable sort of saying, okay, you know, we're not going to run ourselves just for shareholders. We're going to be more stakeholder balanced and huge amount of controversy. I think it was 81 companies did not agree to sign up to that seemingly innocuous pledge to, to look after stakeholders. And one of the things I'm concerned about is it's a bit like the Sullivan principles back in the days of apartheid in South Africa, where companies sort of signed the signed up to the Sullivan principles, job done, check mark, and then that was sort of ground cover, you know, for, for, for whatever they wanted to do. And it didn't really lead to the kind of systematic change that took very, very concerted activism to, to create in that country. Um, do you think we're on the brink of something like that here, where business is actually starting to say, wait a minute, this is not good for anybody? You know, I think two things are happening. And I just want to check, is the, are you guys hearing too much background noise or is it okay? I think we're okay. All right. Um, so... One, I applaud the business roundtable. So it's been just about a year since they made the announcement that a, the role of a corporation is not just to the shareholders, right? But to the shareholders, to the stakeholders, to employees, to suppliers, to the community, right? I mean, it's the whole breadth, right, to customers. Um, and I really applaud. And I think that that is the right way that it should be looked at. One of the reasons why I'm actually optimistic that you'll see more companies like that is because in general, we tend to have a talent shortage mm-hmm. um, in a lot of key areas. Not everywhere, but a lot of key areas, which means employees can choose with their feet where they want to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that starts to shift power, if you will, to hold companies accountable. Because they know if they want to attract the best talent, they're going to have to create an environment in which these employees actually want to work. And I so applaud you know, people talk about the, the current generation, Gen Z, millennial, whatever. I am so excited about these, these generations. They are so much more focused on all the things that we messed up. They're so much focused on the environment, right? They're focused on society in general, right? You know, do well, but also do good, you know, all of that, which is phenomenal. And I think they're going to indeed have to bring companies with them. Other companies are going to find that they're not going to have people to hire that they want to hire. Mm-hmm. So I do think that we're on the cusp with regards to a, a broader shift mm-hmm. of companies also trying to be, frankly, just good corporate citizens. Mm-hmm. And they <laughs> might suffer penalties if they're not. 
So one of the points that um, my friend Jeff Pfeffer, who's a, a professor at Stanford, um, makes, and, and Zainab as well, is when we look at the, 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 the wage, right, um, you can have very low wages and have an incredibly high cost of labor because of turnover and presenteeism and anxiety. And uh, Jeff makes the observation that if you wanted to, you know, you could find out, for example, you could find out from your pharmacy benefits provider what part of your organization is, you know, outsized in terms of its use of antidepressants or, or anxiety drugs or certain kinds of procedures. If you wanted to look, the data are there. Um, and his, his somewhat um, cynical perspective is people don't want to know. And I think it's really got to almost get to the board level where there's someone holding the organization accountable for things like, you know, do we have toxic managers in place? Are we having practices that don't let people really contribute their full, um, their full value, that kind of thing. And I think it's um, kind of interesting. So, so we've got boards that could ex exercise some influence on this, right? Direct the attention of management as it were. Are there other levers that we should be thinking about sort of, pulling as we as we try to get a more just equitable situation yeah, i think i think i honestly i think employees have again a lot of power you know we've seen situations where employees have walked out of businesses or and or made big social media pushes whatever and companies are forced to respond so you know at the end of the day company leadership shareholders they actually want a company that is sustainably and consistently delivering results and you can only do that if you've actually got a really good motivated, right, employee, employee base. Um, so it's really just everyone, everyone making sure their voices are heard, their concerns are known, right, those, those kinds of things. I really don't, I think the vast majority of companies want to be running a good company. Um, companies are not entities, they are people. They are just people, people all together. So we're all people. Um, so it's not them, right? It is us. So if we think the environment's not the way it should be, then we need to do something about it. And if it's making sure we're raising it up to, to management, we're reporting issues, we're holding each other accountable for behavior, you know, whatever it might be. But everybody has power to use. And that comes back to courage again, right? To have, to have the, the power to exert that courage. I think that's really an important message, really important. So um, I'd love to get your perspective on sort of the kind of, we're at this really weird moment right now where a lot of women are at home with their beloved partners and with their children and with everybody who's near and dear to them. It's very hard to get anything done in those circumstances. And I get asked a lot, do I think that this is going to be a setback for professional women or do I think it's going to sort of break down some of these norms that have created the career structures we have where it's sort of this ratchet effect right so if you miss a turn sort of down here you never get back on the track again what do you what do you from where you sit what do you see as possible scenarios you know um i i i honest i honestly believe in terms of as we look at what companies are doing um that the right, behavior, the right behaviors in terms of will, you know, will come through if they're properly in incented, you know? Um, so, you know, Rita, it's, um, it's interesting to me. I'd love to hear even from you, like an, an example of the kind of thing that you're talking about in terms oh. of what you're seeing. Oh, so, well, a couple of things that I think are 
so the, the issue kind of is depending on where you are in your life, right? So at the early stages, it's just much harder to create those networks, those sponsor engagements and so forth. If you're, you're, you know, hold up at home. I mean, it's just, it, I think it can be done, but it's harder. Okay. So I, yeah. All right. Then I, okay. I understand. Cause it's a broad, cause when you ask, it's kind of a, a broad thing. So mm. let me just say, and let me just say in general with everything that's going on, um, I personally am very concerned. Mm-hmm. I honestly believe that we are going to see a lot of women fall out of the workforce That's what I'm in, the next, about. in the next five, within the next, you know, four or five months, because it is just overwhelming. Um, women are still carrying the majority of the responsibility at home. Um, and now that it's hard to get help because of COVID, because we're in, we're cutting all, all those things and all the resources that are usually in place to help and support are kind of not available, um, in too many households, it's too much of that burden is falling on women. And yes, I think we're going to see a lot of women that are going to step away from the workforce, which is terrible because we'll be paying that price for years. Yeah. Um, Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the other interesting thing, of course, is demographic. I mean, a lot of them are not only the ones that have families are at risk of dropping out, but the, a lot of the ones that don't have families are going, you know, I'm going to pause on that, <laughs> you know, because I see what's happening to people just a couple of uh, career you know, life stages ahead of me. Um, one of the things I'm hopeful about, and this is something um, that Aviva and I've talked about a lot, which is um, if we thought about careers over the course of your whole work life, and we didn't think about careers as having this sort of ratchet where you make it to here and then you make it to there and then you make it. To, and, and like, if you get, if you fall off the truck, you're, 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 you're lost. Um, but I, I, I do see the possibility of women really finding new um, energy in their fifties and sixties. I mean, you know, we're, we're like seeing that all around us where women are really restarting careers later on. And I think that's a very interesting development. That's kind of new. You know, I think at one point we thought, oh, women in their 50s, they're all washed up. But now what we're seeing is, no, they're starting businesses. They're taking their on joining boards. They're doing all kinds of things. Well, listen, we're in general, we're living longer. We are healthier longer, right? Our minds are good and active. Um, So, yes, you know, I think it's true. I think it's true for everybody. I think it's true for men and for women. Um, But um, but absolutely. 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 So we've got about five minutes left, uh, and I'm, this has just flown. I can't believe that. Um, so two things to ask you. If there's a couple of thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with that you think you know, they should just really, really bear in mind. I think the courage theme is definitely one. And then how should people get smarter? How can they educate themselves better? Oh, sure. So a couple things. You know, one, I will tell everyone that I firmly believe that everybody has the capability to achieve their aspirations if they're intentional about it and make trade-offs. Notice I don't say sacrifices. To me, a trade-off, choices, decisions, you own. You keep the pain. You make sacrifices, you're basically giving it away to somebody else. Um, how to get educated and things around this? Well, there are a couple of things. One, you can start with my book, which by the way, is coming out in all formats. I've seen some chats. It'll be digital, ebook, Audible, which I recorded um, as well. As I the, saw you recording in the studio. That's yeah. amazing. So if you guys, if you get the Audible book, you'll get it in Shelley's own voice. Um, yeah, I, I didn't do my last book. Um, it just, it sounded overwhelming. Was it overwhelming? Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of work, um, but I didn't want anybody else reading my story. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's good for you. Yeah, that was the end of the day. I was like, nope, I'm too much of a control person. Like, no, I know I'm reading this. <laughs> Um, so, um, but anyway, and then, you know, the, the other is, 
the things I, the things I talked about right now, this period of time is really hard for women. It's just really hard because even if you don't have kids, um, a lot of times because you don't, you might be getting asked to do more uh, because you don't have kids. So of course you have nothing else to do. Um, <clears throat> number one, the other thing that happens is you're being pulled, you know, family, not just kids, but family, a lot of family needs help. A lot of things need help. And so you get pulled in terms of to all of that as well. So I just want to share the empathy of this time is absolutely hard. Don't yeah. So don't keep it all inside. Don't keep it all inside. You need to find, you know, if you can't talk to your partner or your spouse or your mother, you said, find somebody that you can talk to, let it out, et cetera. Because I'm also very concerned about just the mental health stress from all of this that we are all undergoing um, because it is hard. It's a hard and it's a very emotional time for people who are falling into the categories that are definitely being targeted and or focused on right now, et cetera. So there's just a lot of stress happening. Um, so find your stress relievers and make time, even if it's just 15 minutes, but take time to do something that helps you with self-care. So, and your, and your, your cheerleaders. And your yes. cheerleaders, I think, are so yeah. important. You know, Absolutely. one of the bright spots uh, about this pandemic is, um, you know, making new friends that are really good friends. I mean, I don't know about you, but, you know, a lot of my life over the last 10, 15 years has been spent on airplanes and in airports. And so I might meet somebody at an airport, but that, you know, other than that, the opportunity to really forge friendships was hard. But now what we're finding is, um, and I can, there's been like maybe four or five people over the last six months who we would have been friendly, but we would have been distant passing in the night. And um, uh, one is, is Safi Bakal, who I called up to ask a, a, a sort of a question that his expertise was relevant to. We ended up having a lovely like two hour conversation. I was like, I really got kind of got to know this guy. So I think one of the positives that people could be thinking about is how do I forge some of those new connections um, that may be different than the way I did it before. And I think that's a positive move. Mm -hmm. All right. Final, final thoughts. Yeah. Final thoughts are, you know, I, I write a blog where I share a lot of thoughts, ideas. I, this is period in my life for me. It's all about impact and inspiration. So if you liked anything that you heard or any perspectives that I've got, number one, yes, please pre-order the book. Um, but <laughs> follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever. I'm Shell, S-H-E-L, and then Archambault. I'm the only way, I'm the only Shelly Archambault spelled that way on the, on LinkedIn. So it's easy to find me. Um, because I try to post things that are inspirational, but also helpful. Um, and uh, I look forward to continuing the dialogue that way. Absolutely. But thanks so much for having me, Rita. Oh, I absolutely enjoyed our time.